When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. I don't think you can truly change for the better in a lasting, meaningful way unless it is driven by self-acceptance. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Be inspired by women from across the globe. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams? What I know to be true is that women were always meant to lead. And by shining a light on those doing it well today, my hope is that more women will find their own voice. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Hello, everyone, and welcome into another week of Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco. So great to be back every week. Um, joining me in just a few moments will be Sonita Lota. And Sonita is a board member for Sunrun and True Blue. And we're going to be learning all about her former corporate career and and how she really kind of bucked the system in landing these public company board spots. Um, at the end of the show, you'll hear from Sherry Morrison, our Lifestyle Watch contributor. And Sherry's going to be with Deborah Minchef. Deborah's the founder of the Artful Pen. Um, as always, to learn more about the show and see who's coming up, visit our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. So now I'm very honored and thrilled to welcome to the show, Sonita. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Sue. It's an honor. T remind us where you're joining us from. Where are you? Today, I'm actually joining from sunny Las Vegas. So oh, no, yeah, 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 yeah. So since January of this year, so I've been splitting my time between San Francisco, where I've been for the past 30 years, and Las Vegas. Very nice. Um, well, and actually, I wanted to start off with your uh, where you were born, which was Indonesia. Yeah. And I wonder if you can talk about the community there for a couple of minutes. What was that like? Great question, and thanks for asking. Yeah, so I'm originally from Jakarta, Indonesia. It's a big city, about 12 million people. And actually, many people may not realize it. You know, Indonesia is actually the world's fourth largest country with about 275 million people and 17,000 yeah. islands. And so I grew up in a very diverse environment. I had family members and friends, you know, from different ethnicities and religious backgrounds. And looking back, you know, I would say probably this upbringing without me realizing it had enabled me to develop a more diverse and global perspective. Mm. Okay, tell me about um, your parents and how they impacted the choices that you've made throughout your life. 
Mm -hmm. So my, my parents, uh, they're successful business owners and, um, you know, uh, they, they, for them, you know, growing up, I felt like they instilled in me the importance of education and resilience and growing up. So I actually really looked up to my mother because she was a little bit ahead of her time. You know, she was, you know, a female, a minority and Indonesian society is still primarily male dominated, especially in business and in leadership position. And despite all that, she was able to actually build a pretty successful business together with my dad. Okay. And, uh, you know, she's a very hardworking, disciplined, you know, um, uh, accomplished business person and uh, very strict, you know, so I was growing up, you know, very disciplined. My dad, he's an engineer and also a business person. Uh, he, he's a little bit, um, uh, more laid back than my mother. And, you know, he had this ability, I would say, to really have the foresight or like kind of like where the world might be going. And so growing mm -hmm. up, you know, kind of like business people, education, discipline, I think it really affected, uh, you know, how I grew up. Wow. I, and, you know, when I think about you, I would say that you have that same gift as your dad about, you know, being futuristic thinking and, and, which may be why you ended up in technology and, and very much involved in innovation around technology. Was it something you knew at a young age that was the path you wanted to take or did you just figure that out later? Yeah, you, you know what, Sue? I think, uh, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. I don't think at the time I realized that, but I knew I was good in math and science. So actually growing up, I was doing really well academically in math and science. So I knew kind of I wanted to, you know, uh, study that. Um, and also the other thing that I used to do when I was growing up, you know, in junior high and high school, I would always be involved with some kind of school activities, you know, like, oh, you know, part of the fundraising committee or uh, part of the, you know, end of school year committee. And one highlight that I really remember was this big fundraising activity that we did during my last year in high school, where we, you know, had like a big gala at the Central Jakarta Arts and Culture Center students had performances and we raised money to help, you know, the underprivileged uh, uh, communities in Jakarta. And I felt really satisfied at that time. And so looking back, I felt that even though I didn't know it at that time, but it seemed like, you know, there were um, emerging uh, trend where I knew I was good in math and science, but I also like to uh, do activities where I felt that it was making an impact, you know? And so now looking back, I felt there had always been that bent, but I don't think I realized it at the time. Tell me, talk to me a little bit about your confidence and self-esteem when you were a young girl. Um, I would say um, I knew I was good academically, you know, of course. Uh, I was pretty social, but not too social. You know, I was not part of the cool kind of like kids, you know, in school. Uh, but I had confidence that um, I had the ability to kind of like uh, do school work well, you know, and also be involved and sometimes in leadership capacity, uh, you know, student class presidents and things like that to perhaps gain the trust uh, of, you know, my uh, peers, my, my uh, friends and other students. And how old were you when you came to America? Yeah, I was 18 years old. Uh, I came to America by myself uh, to go to college, actually, uh, Sue. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, of course, then I had to learn a new language and a new culture. Uh, yes. And, you know, I um, went to many schools, actually, I guess, because I, you know, like schools, um, went to Berkeley for my um, undergraduate in engineering. And then I went to MIT for my uh, master's in engineering. But then I also wanted to study business. And so I went to Northwestern uh, Kellogg for my MBA. It was really, I think, in graduate schools that I started to develop just a few guiding principles. You know, like one, I realized, hey, I really love this intersection of new technology, the creation of new business, and even a little bit of policy. And then the second, as I've mentioned, I realized I wanted to work in an area, even technology area, that, you know, there is that contributing factor, you know, making an impact to society. And so grad, after graduation, still wasn't clear what industry or what functional area I would go into, but I really uh, leveraged, I would say, these two guiding principles to help me kind of find that intersection of my passion, which is what I love, you know, technology, new businesses, 
my skills. I'm pretty good in uh, helping to start new businesses, think about new business models that can be enabled by technology. And more imp most importantly, you know, working in technology areas where there is that additionality factor, where the technology is actually helping to make things better. Did you ever have a desire to be an entrepreneur? Uh, you know what, believe it or not, I did actually right after college, I uh, had a small uh, um, uh, online game company. It was a little bit ahead of its time, I would say. Oh, wow. But but we were actually able to grow the user base, uh, you know, did that for a couple of years, too, and eventually sold it a, to a larger competitor. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah that's, that's really exciting. Um, so you spent time um, at HP, Siemens, um, PG&E. When you look back over those years, I'm guessing there were great lessons that you that you learned and took away from working for you know, a large corporation like that. What comes to mind? What what would be kind of the top three lessons that you took from those companies that you use then um, in your advising and consulting as a board member? Uh, great, great question. Yeah, I've been I've been really fortunate, I would say, to have had those experiences. And I think the differentiating factor, even though you mentioned, you know, very, very large, you know, global companies, but my um, kind of focus, you know, even in those companies had always been helping these companies to launch new businesses. So, for instance, with HP, I was actually helping to launch their new 3D printing business, you know. HP is not known so exciting. in the printing industry, but that's where the new sources of growth would come in the future. So, you know, that was my focus at HP. The same thing with Siemens. You know, Siemens is a large global conglomerate, 180 years. But where I was focusing on was helping them to launch their new digital grid business. Because, again, you know, companies know that new sources of growth in the future would probably not come from, you know, where they had been in the past, you know, decades, right? And same with PG&E. I was involved with more of their new smart energy renewable energy initiatives. So of course there are many lessons learned, Sue, but I would say uh, perhaps from those experiences, three things I think really stick with me. The first, especially I think if you're a leader working in technology, I think you have to be customer focused. And the reason I say that, because I do see tendencies sometimes for brilliant people inventing new things, you know, they're so brilliant. They invent all these new things. But sometimes when they're purely focus on the technology, they can lose sight as to like how that technology is actually helping to solve real customer mm -hmm. problems. Mm -hmm. So I think as a leader, one of the lessons I learned is first, you need to start from understanding the customer problems and then work backwards and be able to articulate how your technology mm -hmm. solutions are actually helping to solve customer problems. I think that's one. And then the second the second, given all of these areas are new areas, I think the other lesson learned I learned is to be flexible, to be nimble, because sometimes some of the new businesses that will be enabled by this new technology, you cannot imagine yet. You know, the, the paradigm is new. So, for instance, it's not my business, but Uber is an example of like matching supply and demand in a very new framework. You know, the, the framework before Uber was taxi. And so if you are not flexible, if you're not open-minded, you cannot see the possibilities. So second is to see the possibilities. And then the third one, Sue, really, this is more of a leadership, you know, um, uh, lesson learned. I, I think as we grow, you know, in our leadership journey, we really have to develop other leaders instead of other followers, you know. And throughout my journey, I kind of felt that this really resonated with me and I read this book uh, or article uh, by John Maxwell, and he says, you know, most people have uh, go through their leadership journey. Uh, there are five levels of leadership, and most of us start uh, being a positional leader. You know, basically people follow us because of our title or because of our position. But that is actually the lowest level of leadership, and that's also the easiest and the least rewarding. And as we grow in our own leadership journey, we know that we have to build trust, credibility, um, you know, influence, and we have to be intentional and willing 
to develop other people as leaders. And I found in my experiences that when you have more leaders in the organization, actually more of the organizational goals can be accomplished. And then at the same time, you're truly making an impact not only to the business, but also to the lives of all uh, the members of your team. So for me personally, throughout this journey, you know, even though I don't think I'm like at the pinnacle of leadership, like what John Maxwell says, the highest level is pinnacle. But this focus of developing others as leaders, you know, becomes more and more important for me. I love that you said, and I wrote that down, to you want to be focused on developing leaders, not followers. And I think that's a very wise you know, frame of mind. Um, it's something interesting in all the years I've been interviewing women leader, leaders, I find sometimes they they fall into one of two categories. They fall into leadership simply by, I'll say default, they're doing such a good job that they ultimately land in a leadership role because someone else has recognized their expertise or they've pursued it. When you think about your own um life experience? Were you pursuing leadership or were you just continually doing the job um, excellent and then offered opportunities? Yeah, I, I would say probably a combination of both, Sue. You know, like, uh, um, you know, of course, you know, uh, first and foremost, you do have to deliver, you know, like there's no shortcut, you know, you have to perform, you have to deliver. But there is the formal things. And then there are all these other informal things that you do you know, that may not be part of your formal job descriptions where people may notice that, oh, you're spending time to develop, you know, these other people who may not even be part of your team to be leaders and they can be productive as well. And then I think the other thing that helps me, uh, and it's funny because I was doing it as part of my job, really, but then now looking back, it turned out that, you know, it had helped me um, to, you know, get recognition from the outside world was um, I did a lot of thought leadership activities. And what I meant by that, you know, given that a lot of the areas that I had been involved with in the past were new technology. So a lot of my work actually involved in explaining what is this new technology all about? How can it impact and deliver positive benefits for businesses, for consumers, for society? So I did a lot of writings, you know, like I had a lot of publications out there. And it's funny because when I was doing that, I was just doing it because it was part of the job. You know, you have a new technology, you're trying to educate, you know, um, uh, your customers, you know, policymakers, uh, you know, the society in general about that new technology. But then I think, you know, inadvertently, without me realizing it, that also developed myself as a thought leader in that particular arena. And that helped to get you noticed, you know, uh, by people who may not be inside your companies or may not be inside your immediate uh, community. We're going to go into our first break. If you're listening on 1210, you'll hear from our watch team members. And I will be right back with Sonita Lonto. Now the women to watch. Finance Watch. Finance Watch. At Penn Community Bank, we're committed to giving small business owners the tools and resources to help them succeed financially. Social media is an invaluable tool when it comes to growing your small business. Whether it's Facebook, Instagram, or a brand new platform rising in popularity, social media is where many of your customers will find you and engage with you on a regular basis. If you're a business owner and want to ensure your digital presence is as effective as possible, Here's how to make your social media stand out in 2022. Think about what your business wants to achieve with its marketing and set simple, measurable goals for social media engagement. If you've already been using some social media platforms, take a step back and evaluate what has been effective so far and what could use improvement. Don't be afraid of doing research. See what competitors or others with a similar business are doing online. If you're running a restaurant, use Instagram to share your delicious dishes. If you're marketing software to other businesses, LinkedIn may be the best place to build an audience. Keep your audience and their demographics in mind. If your target audience is seniors, for example, Facebook is a better choice than Twitter for reaching them. Now that you have your game plan, it's time to develop a plan and create content. This can be as involved or as simple as you like. Just do what you can manage. Determine what kinds of posts will help meet your goals, how you'll engage with your audience, and how often you will post. When it comes to social media, there's no step-by-step -step guide of what will work for every business. 
When you take your business online, it's important to pay attention to trends and adapt accordingly. As a business owner, you probably know a thing or two about adjusting and improvement. Never stop learning and growing, and success will come to you and your business. Follow Penn Community Bank on social media for more tips and resources for small business owners. Penn Community Bank, here we are and here we grow. Women to watch. Sports watch. Hey, everybody, this is Dr. Jen Welker, and you are listening to Sports Watch. Moms and dads, it is important to realize that it's not the same for a girl to dream some of these things as it is for a boy because, first of all, a lot of the times those girls don't see those dreams um, reflected in the world through the lens the same way that boys do, right? We tell a girl she can do anything or be anything, but then the world shows her something very different, particularly in the world of sports. Um, you know, it's a, a known barrier that 4% of traditional media coverage goes to uh, women's sports versus men's sports. So let's say, you know, you tell your daughter she has the same opportunities in sports as the boys do, but then she can't see herself or someone who looks like her or someone playing her sport on TV as easily as she might see it for a boy. She looks at the storylines in movies, doesn't see herself reflected in the same kind of big blockbusters as the boys. She plays video games and doesn't see herself as a playable character. And so it's not going to happen the same way in terms of just normal socialization where she gets to just fall into those examples of women who are doing what it is that she wants to do. Follow me and all my adventures, or you could say misadventures, on Welter47 on Instagram or at jwelter47 on Twitter. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Hi, and welcome back to the show. I'm Sue Rocco, and you're watching Women to Watch, and I'm joined this week by Sonita Lonto. Sonita is a board director with Sunrun and True Blue. Um, Sonita, I wanted to start this segment talking about something that I think is really um, new in business um, and, and really throughout the world that wasn't necessarily um, focused on years ago, and that's that people are looking for meaning and purpose in their careers and in their jobs. And I would say particularly women in technology are more um, active when they know that something they're doing has meaning and purpose. So how are companies addressing this kind of demand? Oh, great question, Sue. And you know what? I actually wrote a Forbes article about this 10 years ago. You know, I said, women are more likely to stay in a technology career if they feel that they're making a difference. And the funny thing is, when you look around today, I think it's even more true today, you know? And, um, you know, I have experienced this, you know, time and time again in my previous uh, kind of executive roles. But I think the challenge right now uh, with companies, you know, especially in this new environment, you know, after the pandemic, is that uh, many women, I would say, during the pandemic realized that, oh, there are many new challenges that they had to face that, you know, they may not have realized before, such as because of the pandemic or after the pandemic, they may have to take care of the elderly, you know, who got sick mm -hmm. at home, have to help with their children because their children are doing uh, school from home. And then they themselves are working from home where the boundaries can sometimes blur. And unfortunately, so some women have, you know, had to quit their job because they felt that they have to prioritize their families. But what I've seen is when companies are being intentional and willing in giving this, all their workforce, actually not just women, but in particular women, the flexibility and the trust, you know, that they would actually get the job done, um, you know, perhaps on their own time because they may not have the same schedules as you, that these women would actually stay and thrive, you know? So I think the challenge actually in the new world is, you know, um, 
is to encourage companies to be more intentional in designing a hybrid workforce environment where they can have a flexible you know, work environment, but still be prudent, that people can still be productive, to, en to encourage you know, more women not to quit their jobs, but to stay in the job. And you know, at, at, at the board level, uh, this you know, kind of flexible hybrid work environment and how it's affecting uh, you know, uh, women in the work uh, a place, which I, I would say is part of ESG and DEI, uh, will become more and more important as we move forward. You know, Sunita, I'm curious your opinion, if you think, is there an actual strategy for um, getting more women into leadership positions? Or do you think it's more a matter of helping them to believe they can? Yes, um, I think it's all of those things. And I would actually answer that question, Sue, from um, both the supply side and, and the demand side. And I will, in particular, focus on technology just because that's the area that I know best. And what I meant by that is from the supply side, I would say that we as a society, you know, parents, teachers, everyone, we have to encourage more women to actually study math and science from a young age. You know, I think girls need to know that to be good in math and science is cool and not just for the boys, you know? Yeah. And um, I think in addition to that, also women need role models who are good in math and science, both the aspirational role models. And what I meant by that is women who are, you know, C-suite, board members, Nobel Prize winners, those are all great. But you also need role models who are practical. And what I meant by that is people who are just one to two steps ahead of you. So, you know, if you're like a college student, female college student engineering, you do need role models who are, you know, successful uh, female professionals, you know what I mean? Who just, you know, maybe two, three years, you know, ahead of you. You, you need those role models. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And then from the demand side, and what I meant by demand is from companies, I think companies need to be very intentional in not only hiring, but more importantly, in retaining and developing their high potential female leaders. And what I meant by this is, it has to be part of the company's DNA. So it has to have the sponsorship, the championship, you know, the budget, uh, all the way from the CEO, uh, get the support of all the executive leadership team and ensuring that these uh, leadership programs for high potential women are actually integrated into their overall company program. So it's not just on the fringes, just a feel good thing, but it's actually truly integrated into that program. So to answer your question, I think it's both. I mean, of course, mm -hmm. as women, we do have to have the confidence. We do have to know that we're good enough, but also I think from a societal perspective, from the company side, you know, there has to be also an intention to actually hire, retain, and develop high potential women. You know, one of the things, again, that I, is impressive with your professional career is the fact that you landed these two positions and probably there's more to come. Um, being on a um, public company board, which is typically male, former C-suite, um, ex, you know, executives. And so I wanted to ask you, how did you do it? And mm -hmm. are you hopeful that they're, you know, we're moving closer to a more level um, arena where there will be half men, half women on these boards, which ideally, <laughs> which ideally will be best? Yes, that, that is a great question. So just to share some statistics. So the numbers are actually not, not, not that encouraging, but it's improving. So I read a study recently that said, um, Today, you know, women comprise of only about 8% of Fortune 500 CEOs and only about 18% of Fortune 1000 board members. So, you know, numbers are still small, uh, right. but the good news is these are actually improvements from the past. So yes. at least we know, you know, that's good, but you and I know um, 
you know, there's still a lot of work to do here. Um, maybe I can just share a little bit about my own board journey, you know, and mm -hmm. of course, too, I know what board members are, but I never actually thought too much about it. But about five years ago, uh, I was still an executive at Siemens at the time. I got a call from a, you know, one of the major recruiting firms and they said, hey, you know, like a large uh, publicly listed energy company is interested to talk to you for a potential board position. But what uh, made me kind of like, oh, that's interesting, was they said that they had uh, seen, again, some of my work talking about how uh, technology have the ability to help, you know, big legacy companies, perhaps such as this, you know, large energy company to transform the way they do business. And they told me that, you know, these days, uh, a lot of companies are dealing with new issues, you know, of course, you know, companies still have to perform financially, still have to deliver for their shareholders and stakeholders, but there are all these new emerging uh, issues such as digital transformation, such as finding new sources of growth, uh, ESG is becoming more and more important, cybersecurity. And I felt that from that experience, even though it was just, you know, one small example, I felt like, wow, so perhaps the kind of skill sets that they are looking now, um, you know, is different from the skill sets, the traditional skill sets of former CEOs and former CFOs of public companies in the past. And don't get me wrong, of course, you still need, you know what I mean, those expertise on the boardrooms, but because of these new emerging issues, I think there are opportunities now for people, uh, you know, to be considered for board positions who may not be former CEOs or CFOs of public companies. Yeah, it's always, I mean, that's ultimately the reason um, we talk so much about diversity and, and inclusion is to have these different perspectives um, are, are so important. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the fact that this is really a new chapter for you um, yes. to be advising as opposed to being in the thick of the day to day at a company. What are you what are you most enjoying about this new chapter? And is there anything you kind of miss from your former life? Oh, yeah. Uh, great, great, great question. Um, so I have just started this new chapter not too long ago, so about five months ago. Mm -hmm. And so very new, you know, uh, truly enjoying it so far, uh, but really learning a lot, you know, because the role of a board member is really that of governance, you know, and what I mean by that is you oversee you guide, you advise, but you don't manage. And actually in board parlance, there is this saying, nose in, fingers out. You know, you have to be curious, you have to ask, you have to make sure, you know what I mean? The company is uh, on the right track, but you're not meddling with, uh, you know, the day-to-day -day because that is truly the role of management. So I'm, I'm still learning, you know, um, uh, about that. And of course you have to be very careful because I actually joined both boards when I was still an executive at HP and I was fortunate HP was very supportive with that. But I think for people like me who are um, kind of like um, new, you know what I mean, in this new chapter, we just have to be very mindful uh, that our role is more of a oversight and governance and not of day-to-day um, uh, -day management. But I think what I really also enjoy um, uh, personally, you know, I think uh, being a board member give you an opportunity to uh, be able to uh, coach, uh, advise, and develop, you know, others as leaders. Of course, the most um, immediate is just the management teams of the companies that you are on the board of. And I really enjoy that, you know, like uh, one of the roles of board members is actually to participate in leadership development, uh, including the uh, evaluation and succession planning for the CEO in determining the right compensation uh, for executives, including the CEO, and also in providing oversight for talent management and to uh, help, you know, kind of set the tone for the culture, you know, at the top to ensure that the company has the right culture uh, that is aligned with the company's strategies and mission and values. And I think I really enjoy that part, you know, of uh, being a board member. Um, I, I thank you so much, Sonita, for sharing your professional journey and your personal journey, and I wish you continued success. Oh, thank you so much, Sue, for having me. Stay with us, and when we come back, you'll hear from Sherry Morrison, and she'll be with uh, Deborah Mincheff, the founder of The Artful Pen. We'll be right back. 
Now, the women to watch. Marketing Watch. Finding your brand's purpose. Hi there, my name is Diana Barnes, or DB as most people call me, and I'm the Chief Brand Officer and Creative Director at Munchkin, the world's most loved baby lifestyle brand for over 30 years. We know that companies who give back to causes that are important to their consumers tend to grow faster, have increased brand loyalty, and attract top-tier talent. But what if your company's corporate giving is fragmented or non-existent? The former was the case when I joined Munchkin seven years ago. The company made donations to organizations, but there wasn't a strategic approach to its giving efforts. Sometimes a company's choice for philanthropic support, commonly referred to as CSR or corporate social responsibility, is evident. A shoe company donates sneakers to children in need, for example. At Munchkin, we leaned into less obvious choices. Just like the parents that use our products, we're concerned now more than ever about the world we're leaving to our children. Ensuring that at-risk and endangered animals survive for future generations is a primary pillar of our CSR. Our product line, Wild Love, infuses our devotion to animal welfare with our most successful products, our 360 Miracle Cups. The line is solely focused on educating families about these at-risk species and supports our biannual donations to the International Fund for Animal Welfare. Our philanthropic efforts also support Trees for the Future and the building of the world's first whale and dolphin safe haven through the Whale Sanctuary Project. We make these contributions because it's important to our founder, our employees, and our consumers. When I tell people where I work, they either recognize our brand from our most popular product, the No Spill 360 Cup, or they know us as the baby brand that cares about animals. Either is a win-win in my book. When it comes to defining CSR efforts for your company, don't be afraid to look beyond the obvious places or ways to give. Commit to a cause and to ongoing long-term donations. Find reputable organizations to give to by searching on GuideStar or Charity Navigator. Get your employees involved with volunteer opportunities and share milestones and accomplishments with your consumers. After all, they're the ones that make the giving possible. To learn more about all of Munchkin's CSR work, please visit us at munchkin.com. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. Hello, I'm Sherry Morrison, and welcome to the lifestyle segment of Women to Watch. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Deborah Minchep. Deborah is president of Les Dames de Scaffier International and founder, calligrapher, and designer of the Artful Pen. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Thank you so much for having me. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Deborah has covered many different genres of the food and hospitality industry. Um, I, I think the two of us have a lot in common. Uh, I love that she has taken her creative juices, experiences, and skills and turned them into her career, passion, and lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Deborah, tell us a little bit about where you're from and your education. Okay, so I was um, brought up, born and bred in Brooklyn, New York, in a wonderful Jewish-Italian neighborhood. Um, I was brought up with two parents and a brother who I never got along with until I was about 40 years old. Um, we were um, a family that was very, very tight-knit. Um, I went to public school, I went to Brooklyn College, and then I got a master's from New York University. That's all, all in Brooklyn, New York. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I branched out of Brooklyn when I met my husband, who is Belgian, and uh, I went immediately into Manhattan, where I have lived with my husband ever since. So you're still there. You must love it. I'm a city girl. <laughs> that I'm a country bumpkin. <laughs> I enjoy hearing about each of our paths um, in life and, mm -hmm. it's, and I think it's funny how we all finally get around to doing something that we love or hope hope to get around to doing right. something that we love. Um, you've dabbled in all sorts of things and take away skills and pieces that you find value. Um, you taught fifth grade for 10 years mm -hmm. then you worked at Tavern on the Green for free and learned quite a bit about Gard Manger and Correct. for those of you who are not familiar with Gardevanger term, it is the food handler of the handler of cold food um, presentation and is in charge of usually a lot of the garnishes that are on your plates or on buffets. Um, the, pe the person that takes a, 
a pineapple and turns it into a pecan or a tomato and turns it into a rose. Um, Deborah, please tell us about this experience and how it led you to your next stepping stones. Yes. Well, it, it was an eye opener. What basically what happened was I decided after 10 years, I did not want to teach anymore because it was no longer a challenge for me. And I like challenges. And uh, I took a course in cold banquet food, God manger, and the chef said, hey, you can come and work for free on Saturdays. And I went running. And after, you know, doing that for about six months, he offered me a job and I quit teaching and went to work there where I learned the basic skills of cutting, turning mushrooms, turning tomatoes into roses, boning ducks, carving, working with aspic piping. Um, it, it was heaven. It was all about process. And I am all about process. Um, and after doing that for a year, I thought, mm, I need to try something else. So I thought test kitchen in a, in a magazine. So I basically hounded all of the food editors at all of the magazines in New York until one of them, I think, just got tired of hearing me on the other end of the phone and said, come in and we'll give you a chance to test baking recipes for the Christmas issue. And if you are as good a baker as you say you are, we will hire you. And that's what happened. So, you know, it's the same old story. Once you're let in the door, you then use that to say, hey, guess what? I already did this. So then somebody else is willing to take the chance and hire you. Um, so I did that for a few years, then decided, ah, I need something more challenging. Food stylist, that's the person, whenever you see a beautiful photograph of food, whether it's Burger King or a box of Post cereal or any food in the magazine, it's a food stylist who shops, prepares, cooks, plates the food in a photography studio. It is amazingly challenging. It's very exciting. You have no opportunity to mess up you have to be a success every day. So it's a challenge every day. And I love that. I did that for 15 years. Wow. Yeah, that's funny. We had a conversation um, a couple of days ago about food stylists. I, I did some of that as well mm -hmm. for a salad company that purchased my company. And it was a bit of a challenge making potato salad or tuna salad look exciting and different. They had different types of tuna salad or potato salad. So how to make each of those look a little bit different and pretty. I mean, potatoes, there's not a lot to them. So you get that really exciting potato salad on a plate and how are we gonna jazz that up for a picture? It was a challenge. Exactly, the interesting thing about when you look at a picture of a food, uh, think of a, a Burger King burger. Um, <laughs> when somebody sees that photo, you need to have them feel like they can taste it and they can smell it and they are experiencing what it would be like. So there is a, is a lot that you need to convey in that plated food, whether, or uh, I've done dog food, you've done potato salad. Uh, you can make anything look tempting if you're motivated enough. <laughs> I did dog food as well. That's hilarious. Anyway. Um, so with all of these great experiences, yes. eventually in the culinary world, mm -hmm. eventually you were invited to be part of a very elite group of women um, called Les Dames de Scaffier. Um, can you tell everybody a little bit about this international organization and the different roles that you've played with them? Sure. Happy to do that. Um, it's actually a pretty interesting story. Les Dames de Scaffier was founded in 1976 by... Carol Brock, who was the food editor of the Sunday Daily News. And she was a force. And she felt that there was great inequities in the food, beverage, and hospitality industries when it came to women. So she decided that she was going to found an organization of women leaders in food, beverage, and hospitality whose mission, and we would be not-for-profit, whose mission would be education, advocacy, and philanthropy for women. And so she set about gathering up 50 of the most prominent women she could find. There was an induction at the French consulate, 
And that was the beginning. New York was the first chapter. We are all, I'm a member of the New York chapter. We are the largest chapter. And in five years, she was able to start five other chapters. Fast forward, we are now 43 chapters, 2,400 members in the U.S., Canada, the United Kingdom, Mexico, and France, and we're working on Tuscany. Um, each chapter, I know we're excited, each chapter is a 501c3 not-for-profit, so we have raised millions of dollars in scholarship. Our goal is really to um, help women in the industry and in the communities achieve the career goals that they want to achieve. So we are there to support, network, and be a resource for women in food, beverage, and hospitality. That's fantastic. I'm fortunate to be a member in the Philadelphia chapter. Um, And since I've been doing this program this summer, I've interviewed three other dames from the Philadelphia chapter. Uh, Ellen Yen of Fork and High Street Hospitality, Natanya DeBona, who brings the dinner on Blanc to Philadelphia and Atlantic City right now, uh, was her first year. They just had the uh, event in Philadelphia with 5,000 people, and Olga Sorzano of Baba's Mm -hmm. Kucha. Um, But there are so many fantastic women in the Philadelphia chapter. They actually did a little spinoff post-COVID called Sisterly Love Collection, and their mission is to support, promote, and nurture the next generation of women in the food and hospitality industry. It's a really dynamic group of women and and fun to be a part of. Um, So now that you've gone through all of these different experiences Mm -hmm. and you're president of Madame Descafier, you're settling in and you have started your own company, totally new, called The Artful Pen. Um, the the name alone brings a peace of mind and a little mm-hmm. bit of your own world of zen. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing and, and, and how that is different than any of the other people that are doing this type of work. Ah, um, well, um, calligraphy like cooking is, again, it's all about process, which I've already said, that's what I am about. Um, when I first came across somebody on YouTube, this is three and a half years ago, and I saw them writing with a pointed pen, which is a nib, and they dipped it into ink, and they were writing very slowly, very slowly on a piece of paper, and you hear the nib scratching on the paper as the ink came out, and each stroke up that went up was as thin as a hair, and each stroke that came down was thick and fat and luscious. And I fell in love with calligraphy in that moment. At the time, I was producing cookbooks for Weight Watchers, and I quit. I said, this is it. Um, And so I basically devoted seven days a week, eight hours a day, to learning uh, how to do calligraphy so that I could become proficient at it. Since it wasn't my first career, I thought I really needed to dive in deep. Um, It is a very Zen experience writing with a pen. You have to be in a very centered, quiet place. Some of my best work is done at two and three in the morning Um, because if you're not, um, your hand shakes and the pen does not lie. Uh, thank you so much for your time and sharing your experiences and uh, the information about your company and the Ledam organization. It's magnificent for women. My pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for asking me. Sure. For more information about Deborah, uh, go to and her beautiful work. Go to her website, www.theartfulpen.com. Uh, join me next week. I will be speaking with Leslie Heiner, founder of Work to Ride fantastic organization in Philadelphia that helps take kids off the streets and puts them on horseback. A trade-off for working at the Chamonix Equestrian Center barn. Um, Stu will be right back to close out the show. Keep living your dream, ladies. Now, the women to watch. Military Watch. Hi, I'm Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President of Military Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. 
You know, my family and friends were always confused when they came to visit me when I was stationed at different military bases. They expected to see a buzz of activity. Troops marching and singing cadences, tanks rolling down the street, convoys moving throughout the base, and of course, the sound of rifle fire echoing in the distance. Though these are common experiences while living on a military base, the sights that surprise them most can be found in anywhere USA. Neighborhoods of single-family homes, playgrounds, shopping centers, movie theaters, grocery stores, and yes, schools. Our installations are where the military conducts its operations, but bases and the surrounding communities are also where millions of military kids are raised. The Department of Defense Education Activity operates 160 schools worldwide with 50 locations and over 21,000 students in the United States. According to the American Association of School Administrators, there are 1.2 million military children worldwide and 80% attend public schools in the United States. Operation Homefront, a nonprofit committed to supporting military families, is helping to ensure these amazing kids are ready for the school year ahead. Their Back to School Brigade is a nationwide school supply collection and distribution campaign. Military families can receive free backpacks and other school supplies. To learn more about supporting military kids and their families, go to www. OperationHomefront.org. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the show this week. Um, stay tuned next week for my interview with our brand new Leadership Watch contributor, Tracy Samia. Tracy is the CEO of Lancer Skincare, and she's going to be a weekly contributor to the show. So I'm very thrilled to have her next week. Um, be sure to visit our website at womentowatch.net for all things related to the show. And thank you, as always, to our producer, Tone, and Sherry for her lifestyle segment. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.